Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Cameron Crookston, who is the editor of The Cultural Impact of RuPaul's Drag Race. Why are we all gagging? Um, Cameron, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So I'm hoping you could start out by uh, how this collection came to be, why you decided to sort of put this collection on RuPaul's Drag Race together. Yeah. Uh, So how did this start? So technically this started... um, I uh, I had interned with a, uh, a pop culture academic publisher called Intellect. Uh, they're based out of the UK. And so um, I know their collection really well. I've worked with them before. And they have this really cool um, book series called Fan Phenomena, where they will pick a piece of pop culture that has um, a really dedicated uh, fan or cult following. So they've got like Doctor Who, uh, Rocky Horror, Star Trek, Buffy, and I was looking through the collection one day at a conference and I was like, you should do RuPaul because RuPaul has a huge following. And this was this was 2018. And so I told, I was talking to the person manning their desk and he said, well, that's a good idea. You should pitch that. I said, who, me? So, uh, so I ended up putting together a proposal and it was my first book proposal. So I, um, I'd been researching drag for a couple of years. And uh, I poured kind of everything I had to say about Drag Race into that proposal. And they got it and they said, this is this is a lot and we like it, but we think there's more going on here um, than just uh, than just fan phenomena. So would you be interested in doing um, a standalone? And I said, absolutely. And then we had some discussions about what my focus would be. And um, again, Drag Race at this point had been around for almost 10 years and I was starting to notice both um, amongst like other academics I would talk to in queer theory performance and also just drag performers, um, the drag was drag race was really starting to have an impact on the art form itself. So it was no longer just documenting the thing, um, but it was starting to uh, to actually affect the way people consumed drag, the way performers engaged with it. Um, and and so that kind of became the vision uh, for the collection. and I sent out a call and 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 here we are. So before we get into sort of what's in the collection, um, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know about RuPaul's Drag Race, can you give us a basic overview of um, the show? Sure. Um, I I will try and keep it uh, relatively brief. (laughs) Feel free to cut me off. Uh, So RuPaul's Drag Race is a reality TV show competition. Uh, it'll, it is actually modeled after uh, kind of early reality TV shows like America's Next Top Model and Project Runway. Um, there's a little American Idol in there. Um, every, uh, every season, you know, between like 8 and 13, 14, our performers are selected. And they're all drag performers from uh, around the U.S. Predominantly, there have been a few international contestants. Um, and uh, they do challenges that test different kinds of drag performance. They might uh, do some kind of acting challenge. They might have to sew a garment from scratch. Uh, they might have to do like a dance number. They lip sync a lot. Um, each week, you know, the bottom two queens uh, who perform the least well uh are, are put up for elimination and they have a final chance to save themselves where they lip sync against each other and then someone is eliminated. The show kind of whittles down uh, the contestants and at the very end, uh, the, the quote, next drag superstar is crowned. They become kind of the reigning uh, queen for the year. Uh, so I guess the short version is it's a, it's a reality show contest um, about drag performers, drag queens. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and I do like how you said it sort of mixes a number of different reality, right? It's not just straight putting together a costume. It's right. There's performance in there. There's lip syncing. There's this wide variety of um, ways in which they participate. 
<laughs> and vote each other off the island kind of thing, right? Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so it, when you put this, like you said, you put this collection together, um, you wanted to look at all the different aspects. So you st- the first chapter, so I'm hoping we can just sort of talk through some of the chapters um, and get an idea about this. So the first one um, starts out with its impact on the on local drag scene. So can you talk a little bit about that, um, what's happening, what you sort of start the collection out with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first chapter is by uh, Joshua W. Rivers. Uh, it's called Twerk It, Work It. And it is about, uh, so Joshua t- tells the story of being um, a young gay man who first encountered drag really through drag race. Um, and uh, he was at the time an exchange student in Germany. Uh, and and had friends kind of across Europe. And so a, a group of his friends ended up putting together uh, a local drag party in uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands. And uh, they, they ran it for about, I think, four years. And it became um, like a local underground drag party uh, called Twerk It, Work It that was very much based on uh, everyone's experience watching Drag Race. And so uh, Josh talks about the way that like kind of like people's... Um, the way drag race functioned to kind of introduce people to the world of drag and then how that quickly mixed with local drag scenes because of course drag races is by and large very focused on different american drag communities like different ones around the country but there is still a certain um uh, cohesive style or styles that are specific to the u.s um so joshua talks about the way that um drag in the netherlands and drag in kind of local communities uh, blended with that and the way people uh, started experimenting with their own sense of gender performance and gender performance both personally and artistically. Um, and yeah, yeah. And I mean, that was a really important uh, chapter for me. One of the reasons I wanted to start with it is a lot of, a lot of, um, I think the genesis of this idea was looking at the impact that drag race has had almost pedagogically. So many people now encounter drag through a TV show where it is historically, um, either a live performance style or an underground party um, style of entertainment and performance art. Um, and what's starting to happen is people are uh, kind of going in the opposite direction now where they watch it on a TV show, but then will seek out the local version of it, or in this case, actually create their own. Um, so you so you move into um, also thinking about the activism and uh, the next couple chapters really get into some of those ways we sort of... Um, think about drag and what RuPaul's Drag Race is doing around those ideas. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what's going on in chapter two? Um, And then, and also, um, I think, I mean, you can maybe say it doesn't, but um, chapter two and chapter three sort of fit in with those ideas of sort of um, that those activist spaces. Yeah, I mean, I think for sure, like two, three, and four definitely have a a bit of a through line. They they touch on it in different ways. So I'll talk about them individually and separately at the same time um and concisely uh yeah so chapter two um is called change the motherfucking world the possibilities and limitations of activism uh on rupaul's drag race and it's by uh, ash Kenita court chapter three is called queering africa um baby sahara benet's african aesthetics and performance it's by lawando scott chapter four it's called heather has transitioned transgender and non-binary contestants on rupaul's drag race and it's by kay woodzik um, so all of the chapters do, uh, I think in, I mean, three and four really specifically deal with identity politics, which is a question I get asked about a lot in drag race uh, conversations academically and, and just kind of uh, socially. And certainly in terms of drag races, like social media footprints, that's a question that comes up a lot. Um, I'll start with two. Uh, so chapter two looks at um, both the history of drag as an activist art form and then uh analyzes three contestants who kind of self-identified as activists while they were on the show and then tracks um, both their their previous and um, their previous activism and activism they did after uh, being on the show. Um, I thought this was a really interesting concept for a chapter and I, I really appreciated the, the submission because um, activism is something, I think it's very common and, and I see this both on and off drag race, uh, that people will kind of make a nod to the fact that drag is subversive or drag is very activist and, and drag is about breaking the rules. And and there's often not a lot of follow through on the specifics of that. And it can be a very general thing. Um, 
And uh, so this the chapter starts out actually by looking at some of the history of really specific activists, uh, drag queens. So um, Vaginal Davis, formerly Vaginal Cream Davis, um, and Joan Jett Black, who is, I think, the first drag performer to publicly run uh, for mayoral office um, in the early 90s. Um, so doing a little work to kind of situate the pos- the potential uh, of drag to be an activist art form, because I, I think one thing it's important to to say, and I say often, is that, I mean, drag is a very large umbrella um, and different styles of drag, um, you know, are possible. Um, and to kind of say drag is X is always really complicated because very few um, qualities of drag universally apply. So there are, there are activist drag queens, there are radical drag queens. They're also fairly, um, you know, uh, accessible, even um, not conservative, but uh, uh non-radical uh, drag artists are definitely possible and popular. Uh, so this chapter looks um, at Bob the Drag Queen, Sasha Velour, and the Vixen, uh, and kind of looks about how the show, um, in kind of some of their talking head segments, uh, you uh, talked about um, their history doing activism work. So like Bob uh, actually did protests and block traffic for gay marriage, um, the Vixen's history of producing um, Black Girl Magic. Um, and then uh, also t- spoke about the Vixen's kind of fallout with RuPaul and the reunion. Um, the, the Vixen uh, kind of butted heads with another contestant on her season named Eureka and uh, tried to start a conversation actually about some of the optics of race on, uh, on both reality TV and, um, and, and drag. Um, and that was a conversation that was actually shut down by Ru. Um, and so the Vixen has kind of since become uh, very vocal uh, for um, for talking about issues of racism and race and racism um, within queer spaces and within drag spaces, um, so I mean this the chapter kind of tracks that all and tries to situate it within both what happened in the show itself and then the kind of extra textual material that we get if we follow these queens um, after the fact. Um, Lawando Scott's chapter on queering Africa, which I, I I mean I find them all really interesting. I found this one really interesting because uh, so Lawando is a scholar in South Africa, and he talks about the experience as an audience member watching the first season, in which um, spoiler alert, uh, the, the winner of the first season uh, is Bibi Sahara Benet, uh, who is an immigrant from Cameroon. Uh, she immigrated to uh, I believe uh, Wisconsin. Uh, in her kind of mid to late teens, but uh, was originally from Cameroon. And her drag is very much informed by an African aesthetic. Um, And that is something that she was both praised and critiqued for on the show, uh, particularly around issues of fashion, um, because uh, like many reality TV shows that deal with kind of concepts of high fashion, there is uh, a very white European aesthetic that is often associated with... um, uh, with like high fashion or like kind of highbrow culture is usually associated with whiteness. Um, and so BB did an interesting job of kind of uh, using um, d- uh, drag as an art form that can be both fashion, but also kitsch and camp and kind of blending that with an African aesthetic. Um, and so Luwando talks about the experience of um, of being a young viewer living in South Africa and seeing a black queer uh, African drag queen um, and the fact that on um, you know, on TV within an African context is very rarely, very rarely um, any queer content and within, uh, you know, queer content on, on global television is almost always Western. So there's very rarely um, African, uh, African uh, characters or people or perspectives. Um, and so he kind of talks about the transformativeness of this, the maybe problematic nature sometimes of BB kind of presenting maybe essentialized and even stereotypical forms of African aesthetics, but the importance of kind of leaning into that um, and, and what that kind of did for him as a viewer, which is interesting. And very similarly, the next chapter um, by Kay Woodzik, uh, which tracks all of the contestants who had self-identified either on the show or after leaving as trans. Um, and it starts kind of with the first season uh, with Kylie Sonique Love and uh, it goes all the way up until, I believe, season nine. Um, and what's funny now is that, I mean, since since our, since the book went to print, because Drag Race never stops, um, so many more uh, queens have come out. And, and most recently, or, or even actually as we speak, I'm not sure when this will come out, but we're still in All Stars 6, in which now Kylie Sonique Love has come back. Um, and she's, she's fully transitioned. Um, and she was one of uh, two out trans women to come back. Um, she and Jiggly Caliente both had been, um, had not identified as trans when they're on their original seasons and now, um, are both out as trans women and have transitioned. Um, and so much like, uh, Luando's chapter, 
Uh, Wizzick really talks about the experience of seeing more complicated, nuanced, um, self-identified depictions of of trans contestants because so often the history of um, of trans uh, trans stories in, in media or popular culture is that it usually is a story told by someone else. It's usually uh, assumes a straight a straight or cis audience um, and is done kind of journalistically or anthropologically. So. While Drag Race has had actually a lot of problematic issues around its treatment and depiction of trans uh, women on the show and non-binary contestants, and there's been a lot of erasure and policing of bodies, um, if we look again at the extra-textual material, if we look at both um, some of the discourse within the show, but then also how these contestants have been able to kind of leverage the celebrity um, to have an increased platform, um, there's been a, a real increase in visibility for trans identity. Um, and just, just tracking the, the evolution of like, so someone like Kylie Sonique Love in season two had to do a lot of heavy lifting to just kind of explain what transness was on the show and how it related and how it kind of troubled this um, kind of simplistic binary that drag is always about a man in a dress. Um, and then going through the years to some more recent contestants um, like Shea Coulee uh, or Sasha Velour, whose gender identity is um you know identify as non-binary or identify as gender fluid um and their ability to uh once they've once they've kind of finished the show um to have conversations that that build on some of those foundations that were laid in the earlier seasons yeah and i mean i think it's really one of the things i found fascinating um with this collection is really thinking about the impact um beyond right like the extra textual but not, not only with, you know with the contestants um as well as with um drag and the series itself and i think um the next few chapters really get into that sort of the cultural branding how contestants are using these spaces to um to brand themselves right like becoming memes becoming like t- you know now we have before tiktok wasn't around when it started but now right we're yeah. moving into these other spaces um that they can really um come into their own and, and create larger audiences for themselves mm-hmm. so so if you could talk you know sort of about that and then some of the next couple chapters that really get into those 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 things yeah absolutely um yeah, a, b- a big part of the collection and just kind of, I think everyone's interest in the collection was, yeah, looking at what drag kind of allows for um, and some of the, um, I want to say consequences, but that sounds very dire. <laughs> some of like the opportunities that it creates, but also consequences. Um, so uh, the next chapter is by uh, Aaron J. Stone. It's called uh, How Drag Race Created a Monster, The Future of Drag and the Backward Temporality of the Boulet Brothers, Dragula. Uh, so this chapter actually looks about looks at. I'm gonna try that again. This chapter looks at some of uh, what uh, Aaron sees as the potential of drag and some of the early promises uh, that it um, like made, uh, either implicitly or explicitly, in terms of drag as a radical art form. Um, you know, again, going back to the idea that like drag is obvious is very often toted as being radical and subversive just inherently. Um, and Aaron notes that early seasons of Drag Race kind of talked about like the future of drag and its futurity and the potential to be more subversive. And uh, quite a few chapters later on talk about this, that drag has pivoted a little and actually leaned more into cultivating a very mainstream audience, has become a little less interested in, in rocking the boat or, or being a really aggressively radical. And so uh, Aaron makes the argument that the show Dragula, which is another reality show, uh, very similar in its um, kind of format to Drag Race. Uh, however, it is founded uh, by two drag siblings, the Boulet brothers, uh, whose aesthetic is, I would say, a blend of kind of fetish drag and horror drag and specifically body horror drag. Um, and they, you know, they do a style of drag that is m- much less uh, kind of we'll say like accessible and family friendly and uh, is really kind of about like pushing the body limits and kind of looking at the grotesque and the horrific. And um, Aaron makes the argument that, you know, drag race really set the stage for it. It both created um, a template for a drag reality show, but also primed an audience um, and kind of created a hunger, kind of like whetted the palate or like kind of whetted someone's appetite um, for this form of drag that really was super, super subversive and that drag race itself didn't actually, um, 
you know, didn't cash that check, uh, but stirred up an audience for it. And so I mean, what I like about this chapter is that it actually does, uh, rather than kind of saying, you know, drag race bad, drag you look good, uh, it actually talks about this reciprocal relationship with the way that drag race has created um, something in the zeitgeist where there has been like an increased hunger and it allows for other forms of, of drag uh, in the mainstream to come forward. And the Dragula in this case really was um, like the stage was kind of set and it was allowed to kind of like take up the space that drag race itself um, didn't end up uh, taking up. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, you sort of the branding, the consumer culture, all of that um, is sort of, comes with this as well. Um, <laughs> it, it, like it's a money mate, right? Drag, and also um, the point they get to performing drag can be very expensive on the perform, right? As well. Yeah. So that is, that sort of um, comes up too in some of these, ch- you know, those ideas of like consumerism and consumer culture. Yeah, so like the next three chapters are, are very much about um, like the economics of drag, the, the consumerism of drag and drag capitalism. Uh, so we have uh, Mario Campana and Catherine Duffy have written RuPaul's Drag Race between cultural branding and consumer culture. Uh, Ray LeBlanc's RuPaul's franchise moving towards a political economy of drag cleaning. And uh, Laura Frizen's uh, Legend Icon Star, cultural production and commodification in drag race. So I mean, all of these chapters really do do exactly what you've said. They look at you know the economics of drag race, and, and definitely one of the one of the outcomes of drag race has been that drag for at least the people who compete on the show, um, for the first time in a really long time in history, like probably like over a hundred years, drag is, is a way to make money. Uh, make like it's possible to make a living doing drag. Um, and certainly within North America for about a hundred years, that was really, if not impossible, extremely rare, like maybe a handful of people were able to do it. Um, and drag was this kind of underground, um, I, I've met people who kind of tried to argue that drag before drag race is more of a hobby. And I, I don't love the kind of, there's a little pejorativeness to that, but I kind of understand what they're saying in terms of like the idea that you could, you know, pay your mortgage, um, and save for retirement, uh, using using your art if you were a drag queen was so rare and and since drag race um that's that's become a thing uh Ray LeBlanc talks about the fact that drag race has created essentially a cottage industry um so things like so like drag race has spawned multiple tours um when it first started there was kind of a single tour and it was actually the absolute vodka pride tour and drag race uh, alumni usually I think just the winner the first time was kind of attached to it um and now, you know, Drag Race itself has multiple tours. It has kind of like Work the World tour. Um, it has like the official tour of the most recent season. Um, uh, they do cruises. Um, but then additionally, Drag Race contestants tour, um, and not just winners, like people, I mean, if you can last an episode or two, um, it's very possible to kind of just tour professionally for years and years and years. So Drag Race really is a huge investment um, in that sense. And you know, drag contestants tour Pride festivals around the world. I mean, Pride lasts from like the beginning of the summer. Um, I just moved to Kelowna, British Columbia, and our Pride here, I just found out, is the second week of September. Um, so it's like, it spans. It's, you know, it's a good chunk of the year. So Drag Race has really allowed that um, to happen. Uh, there, there is still kind of a lot of question as to like whether, to what degree there's a trickle down of that. Um, you know, that works for queens who are lucky enough to get on the show and who have a style of performance that meshes within the show. Not everyone does. Um, it certainly, so far, only applies to drag queens with a capital Q. Um, so, you know, drag kings have not seen nearly the the amount of renew- remuneration for that. And even uh, drag queens whose aesthetic is a little uh, rougher or more aggressive or less uh, like kind of TV friendly don't always feel that effect. Um when drag queens tour, especially for things like Pride, or they'll kind of do like local one-off shows, very often they'll have local queens open for them. So to a certain degree, queens do get, um, you know, more bookings, more shows. Um, in general, drag audiences are much larger than they were 10 years ago because, as we said earlier, drag race has really trained people to to kind of love drag and, and crave it. Um, you know, the flip side of that is people's expectations have been trained. And a lot of that is an invisible price tag that we don't necessarily understand. Um, I, a friend of mine in Toronto, I was at a, I was on a panel with her and she kind of broke it down very succinctly. It was that like very often, 
very often audiences are so critical that her drag doesn't look like drag race. And, and she says, it's like, yeah, I'm doing this for $50 and a drink ticket, not $100,000. So I can't put in the kind of financial and time investment. I mean, um, I think this is in Lauren Frizen chapter. She talks about, there was a conversation in season, I think 10, I'm going to say, and it's between Ms. Cracker and Cameron Michaels are backstage. Um, uh, they're backstage and untucked, and they're just kind of talking about the money they spent. Um, and, and Cameron says that he spent more on Drag Race than he did on his first house. And Cracker says that she spent more on, on Drag Race than she did uh, going, to, going to university in, uh, in the United States. So it does take a lot of money, and this is something that's increased since the show started. Um, certainly the runway, there's an expectation that everything is going to be not just um, professionally made, but like kind of tailored and couture. Um, so queens will take out large amounts of money because it is an investment, but that does tend to shift the perception of drag as something that's extremely polished. Um, I haven't really talked about Mario and Catherine's chapter, so I will just, <laughs> I realized that too. I mean, so like uh, Catherine and Mario talk, um, they're, they both come kind of wor- the world of economics and marketing. Um, so they actually talk about the way that drag races use branding um, like linguistically, some of the language drag race is used, the way it's going to use social media, um, the visibility of drag, but then also, yeah, like the economic opportunities drag has created through some of these branding and, and certainly the marketing of drag race, the merchandising of drag race, because that's, I mean, that's become a huge part. So many Queens now, um, I mean, they do the circuits and they do the, the tours and the, the conventions, but they also launch, um, different products like Trixie Mattel has like a fairly successful makeup line now. Um, and that's largely from her uh, her celebrity on Drag Race, but she's able, she's not just pulling in income um, from her performance. Uh, it's from her from her kind of signature makeup style, which she's leveraged into um, into something of an empire in terms of uh, her products. So it's a lot yeah. of money. No, and yeah, it's really interesting too, um, even over the, the span of Drag Race, right? To think about how, like you talked about the ramped up, but even when... Um, like you mentioned, they're in what season six of All Stars, where you even have people who return, you know, on All Stars who might address those issues too. Like when I was first on, I, you know, didn't have the money to do X, Y, and Z, and now I have them. Now I'm back and I'm, you know, ready to spend. Uh, yeah. So you see that as well, and how that's impacted even what they're able to do. Absolutely, and I mean, there has definitely been a shift. Um, I mean, I think you can kind of see it the most. Uh, intensely in season seven and eight, where there is a, a decision in season seven, and RuPaul's talked about this, to cultivate a younger audience. So there is, in season seven, they got a lot more queens who were kind of labeled, quote unquote, look queens. So queens who had less performance experience, but a lot more uh, makeup experience. Many of them performed, air quotes, on um, on Instagram. And their thing was kind of doing makeup looks on Instagram. And there was there you, there was a marked shift in the way that the runway was taken seriously. Like early seasons, the runway is kind of fun, and it's often like kind of a cherry on top to the main challenge. But it works. It feels at times almost more of a parody of a fashion show in the early seasons, where by the time you're getting to season seven and beyond, um, it, it's a fairly large component of whether or not someone is coded as successful on the show is their ability to like kind of perform fashion and have an aesthetic that's going to cultivate. Um, a, a younger audience that is interested in kind of mainstream glamour. And and so you also can't talk about RuPaul's Drag Race without RuPaul, right? <laughs> and you mentioned, you talk about, you know, this move, drag moves to mainstream. And if we think about who's the most, you know, and for a very long time, who's been the most sort of mainstream drag queen, RuPaul's name is probably the one that's right. Um, and so you, there's also... It, you know, he, he no, like like everyone else, he's not perfect, right? Um, and so there, there's also so, sort of addressing um, RuPaul as well. And so you do that the um, last couple of chapters also, you know, it's not only contestants, but we have to look at the creator and, and what what's going on there. So can you talk a little bit about RuPaul's role in this <laughs> and in making drag that the maybe... I don't household name that it is. If that's a good, you know, I still, yes, I still remember. I'm old. So I remember when the, I can't even remember the song, but it would make it, what was it? 
uh, uh, supermodel, you better work. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, right? Like, you know, that coming out and being such a big deal. Um, whereas now it's like, yeah, that's whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that's just like assume. PG Dre, that's RuPaul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Rue's interesting. So I actually just finished rereading Rue's original um, autobiography for for uh, another project I'm working on. And um, on, on queer, on drag autobiographies, actually. And it's interesting because Rue himself talks about, and he wrote this in the mid nineties. Um, Rue talks about the fact that in a lot of ways he was just, the timing was perfect. And he's really aware of that, that there has been, Drag Race is very often kind of reported as being this like, where did it come from? Overnight wildfire success. And there's certainly, um, you know, a, uh, it, it is a bit of a sleeper hit. It does get, really popular really quickly and and maybe a lot of people didn't see it coming but if we kind of look at the history of drag and pop culture there has been kind of a slow burn happening since the 70s in terms of mainstream interest in drag um you know with rocky horror with john waters and divine and rue emerges in the new york scene and in la in the late 80s really wanting to I mean, Rue's Rue's ethos from a very young age is I want to be kind of a mainstream star. I want to be like proper famous and I'm willing to work within this system to do it. Um, And Rue kind of hits the scene as there starts to be a mainstream interest in drag. And we see, because right after RuPaul kind of explodes, we also get things like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, The Birdcage, To Wong Fu, um, we start to get more general, just like kind of mainstream shows uh, about queerness. We get like kind of Will and Grace a few years later. Um, so Rue is really just kind of like gets to the ground floor at perfect timing. Um, but I think is also very smart in when uh, he launches Drag Race, because I think, again, like Drag Race in 2009, it is a really good time for reality TV. I think drag is just so well suited for reality TV. Um, and it's at that point, the, the genre has been around long enough that people are ready for something that pokes a little fun. They're familiar They're familiar enough with the genre to look at something that is kind of like, you know, joshing around a little bit with the conventions of reality TV. And drag is almost by design an art form about parodying cultural conventions. So, I mean, Rue is maybe the queen of timing is what I, the title I would give him. Um so the, the last two chapters, yeah, do kind of look at RuPaul um, politically and in terms of uh, some of Ru's political uh, identity and their place within the queer community. Uh, so uh, Timothy Olis, I'm going to take this again. Timothy Olesiak's uh, chapter, uh, It's Too Late to Apologize, The Lackluster Defense of an Occasional Unlistener, talks about um, uh, an event in which RuPaul on an, an interview did talk about the fact that they would, when asked, they said they would not let um, someone who had completed a transition compete on Drag Race. And they likened it to competing on using steroids in the Olympics, um, which is like maybe one of the worst metaphors I can think of for transphobia. Like it's, it's perfect because it's awful. Um, it's all the, it's all the wrong buttons. Uh and so, and, you know, there was an outcry from the trans community and initially Rue did double down. Um, Rue has a bit of a history of this. There was, um, for the first uh, six seasons, um, Rue uh, used a little, like, convention on the show where every time he did, like, a video message, he would parody Tyra Mail, and it was called She Mail, um, which is a, a transphobic pun on a term for trans women. And... Uh, there was a particularly uh, transphobic uh, mini challenge in season six, and uh, the show ended up replacing um, the female segment. Rue himself was actually quite defensive about the decision. He took to Twitter. He quoted George Orwell a lot. Um, so there was a long conversation about Rue's treatment of trans uh, women. A lot of people pointed out that actually, if you look at the history of drag, that this kind of like definition of drag as being only cis performers in this very strict binary in terms of gender is a fairly new and and kind of artificial construction. Um, And that many trans trailblazers uh, like Marsha B. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were also drag queens. Uh, So, I mean, eventually Rue softly relented. There was this very vague Twitter post about like learning from elders that wasn't really an apology or even an admission of guilt. It was more like a watercolor. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, Timothy does take a look at some of the issues around Rue and some of the discord, perhaps we could say, between Rue's concept of queer identity, Rue's position as um, a drag figure, and how that affects how the show um, is able to embrace uh, trans contestants. It is funny because in the last couple of years, the show has pivoted slightly. Now we've had our first uh, trans male contestant. We've had several, as we've said, of of the trans women who transitioned after the show have come back. So things are changing but yeah it was it was a very uh, i think it was a really important moment in the show's history and kind of looking at Dre, uh, at rue as a queer historical figure because rue rue's identity politics are are complicated and and very specific so no and I, it's i appreciate it in thinking about it because we see this right we see this and i i think of you know it reminds me of like the jk rowling argument this like double down right this whole like how do we think about um identity how do we think about gender how do we identify right and so um seeing that change and that the show can weather that change i think is really fascinating as well that it's been able to yeah, yeah. I, I also think it's important too. Um, I mean, the show the show really supports um, the narrative that it's like it's just Rue and a camera and his opinion um, making all the shots. But the reality is that we, I think, one thing that that especially around season six and seven showed is that you know the show is not RuPaul and that RuPaul's personal politics, while he should still absolutely be held accountable to them, um, he's not the only one driving the ship. And and certainly the show has been able to actually, I, I think, generate a lot of productive conversations around trans identity in drag and also showcase now quite a few really important um, drag artists. Like it's launched the career of several drag uh, artists who are trans. So I I think it does do a lot of good despite some of Rue's issues. Uh, The last chapter is uh, Carl Schottmiller's chapter. This is a movement, how RuPaul markets drag through DragCon keynote addresses. Um, this is a really cool chapter because Carl, uh, who is an LA-based uh, drag race scholar, uh, was able to attend the. F- I think he's been to every drag con now. But this chapter, he actually looks at the keynotes um, from the first four drag cons. So drag con is a convention, you know, kind of think Comic Con, but it's all drag race drag queens. It's you know, there's now they now have them in LA, New York, and Los Angeles. They're hugely popular. They make a lot of money. And, um, you know, you can come get your picture taken and meet and greet with every queen. They have panels, they have performances, and um, and Rue does a keynote. So Carl went to these keynotes and he kind of tracks how Rue's discourse has changed. Um, and, and I mean, I think this is really reflective of, of the way the show's marketing has changed in terms of who it sees as its audience. Um, so Carl talks about the fact that in the, the very first... Uh, the very first keynote address he went to is it was really queer focused. And it was, Rue talks about the importance of teaching, you know, quote unquote, the children um, about queer history and drag as a queer historical art form. And, uh, and then the next year, it was a little more general about drag as an art form, about like embracing color and positivity and self-expression and then later still, it became really about Rue trying to rebrand himself as kind of an Oprah figure. He, he has a recent book that came out called The Guru, and it's the, the R is, is capitalized, so it's like Guru. Um, it's one of those great titles that's impossible to use uh, unless you can see it. And uh, so, I mean, this one was really about sending healing energy and the, 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 the power of, you know, of, of like love and one of the questions he received is actually from a woman with chronic pain and, and Rue does say, you know, like, I'm not really qualified to, to technically help you, but you know, Rue invites everyone in the audience to send this person love um, to heal their, to heal their chronic pain. And and so Carl just kind of notes um, one that Rue is now cultivating uh, the kind of audiences that think that this is a figure who might be able to speak to chronic pain, um, which is very different from kind of the earlier seasons, but also that this does mirror and in a sense influence the fact that the show has since season seven and certainly since it switched to VH1 in season eight, um, very consciously made an effort to cultivate um, straight audience members, particularly like right now, it's I believe its largest and most lucrative demographic is um, straight females under the age of 18. 
So the fact that the show initially did kind of cultivate, you know, drags more traditional audiences, which were uh, queer people, largely queer men, because uh, because this was specifically drag queens, um, and that the show has moved away from that. Um, and, and Carl, as as a queer man, as a um, as someone who uh, is, is over the age of eighteen, um, does kind of I think mourn the loss of the focus and and drag race's specificity of celebrating drag as a queer historic art form. Um, I mean, I think there is, I, I, I don't want to kind of disparage uh, the inclusion uh, of straight audiences and certainly uh, like straight women are uh, in, in terms of like allyship and advocacy um, are a part of the history of queer communities. Um, but I think something about Ruse um, and the producers more generally uh, decision that queerness is not gonna sell. And that in order to kind of really make uh, the kind of money we want and to reach the audience members we want, we need to de-emphasize the queerness of this and and talk about how drag is really uh, for everyone, about everyone, is not terribly specific, um, and is is kind of a generic form of self-invention. Um, I mean, I think it's funny because historically that's in a lot of a lot of times where drag shows up in in either mainstream pop culture or just seeks a broader audience that message happens um like i've I've argued elsewhere like that's actually kind of the the mission statement of rocky horror of le cage full the idea that like drag has lessons that i mean certainly it is a big part of of um to wang fu the idea that the value in drag is its ability to make over straight people um and that assumes a, a predominantly straight audience. And that is, yeah, I think that's a big shame because it does, uh, it turns queer viewers into kind of a second class viewership for their own art form. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so what do you think? So we've sort of talked about all the chapters in the book. Um, like, I actually and- realized we just skipped oh. one. Did we skip one? Sorry. All right. we were, no, we were doing... good. All right. We're talking about, <laughs> oh, we did. Yeah. So the we one did. on, um, performative speech right yes vanjie okay yeah let's go so let's i'll write that that time will so um we have one last i will do this uh so there's one last chapter uh that we can talk about is the one about performative speech so i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that chapter absolutely yeah so uh Alanis Taylor wrote a chapter called Repetition, Recitation, and Miss Miss Vanessa. Sorry, I'm gonna take that again. It's a lot of words in this one. Uh, Alan, S. T- Alan S. Taylor wrote a chapter called Repetition, Recitation, and Vanessa Vanji Mateo, Miss Vanji and the Cultural Producing Power of Performative Speech in RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, so this chapter is based on the infamous moment in which Vanji broke the internet. She was eliminated first in season 10, I'm going to say. It's a lot of seasons. And she just kind of walked backwards off the stage saying her name, Miss Vanji. Miss Vanjie. And it was referenced many times on the show afterwards. And it just was, you know, dozens upon hundreds of memes that year. Um, it was so popular they brought her back the next year um, to be on the show again, which doesn't happen terribly frequently. Uh, so Alan talks first about uh, the kind of the history of speech acts within drag and drag race, um, kind of the creation of catchphrases. Um, and we see a lot of this. I mean, a lot of the catchphrases from drag race are actually kind of pulled and recycled from Paris's Burning. Um, the chapter of my book is actually a play on Bob the Drag Queen's play on a Paris's Burning uh, slogan uh, or, or kind of catchphrase. I don't know why you're all gagging. She brings it to you every ball. And so uh, Alan, first of all, talks about Vanjie's name becoming this kind of uh, ultra ambiguous, malleable catchphrase and how that kind of situates in the history of similar catchphrases throughout the show. Um, but then talks about the fact that this is taken up so um, playfully on social media and the fact that this is both, um, you know, it's a linguistic performative act that works really well uh, as a form of cultural parody and it allows audiences and viewers to essentially participate in drag in kind of a social media way um so there are there i mean there are memes in which the phrase vanji is just kind of inserted into every kind of popular cultural form so there's a scene of the boy from the shining and instead of writing red rum he's writing vanji so vanji is is inserted into kind of all of these kind of classic pop culture moments. Um, there's this, there's a picture of the boy from The Shining, and instead of writing red rum, he's writing Vanjie. Um, you know, there's there's a close-up of the couple from Call Me by Your Name, and he says, Call Me by Your Name. And he 
other guy says Vanji. Um, you know, there's a picture of the Simpsons where Bart has all of these megaphones lined up, and in two of them he says Vanji. And Timothy talks about the fact that this really uh nope. Alan talks about the fact that this is really kind of like the heart of what drag does is cultural parody, is that drag takes little bits of pop culture and queers them and and allows queer people to insert themselves within worlds that often don't um, acknowledge them. And Vanjie's kind of, I mean, that's kind of what Vanjie is doing when she exits backwards is she is inserting herself in the narrative. And rather than taking this as a defeat, she takes this as a moment of kind of punctuation to like make her mark. And this allows audiences to do this um, and kind of do their own queer coding using uh, the Vanjie moniker. And I, I mean, I think when I say that drag is, is kind of perfect for reality TV and social media. I mean, I think we've we've reached a point in in popular culture where the idea of kind of like post modernity, to use like a big academic word, um, the idea of of pop culture being extremely self referential um, and being about kind of citational and like taking bits of things and kind of combining them in ways um, that's something drag has done for a really long time. And I think it's coming in at a time where the general public is not really interested in that. And I think Vanjie is just such, and I mean, this is larger the chapter says too, is that Vanjie is this perfect example of that. Um, and that, that's kind of why this like bizarre moment in TV that had made almost no sense just kind of blew up. So we've talked about sort of all the chapters, right? And um, so where do you think, I have like two last questions for you, but the first is where do you think RuPaul's Drag Race is headed, right? Like, um, do you see this as continuing? Do you see other, um, you talked a little bit about some, but other things sort of offshoots of this, like what's the next, what's the next decade look like? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to, to see what has worked and what hasn't, because obviously one thing that's happened since, um, since we went to print is that Drag Race has had all of these international spinoffs. So when we finished our manuscript of the book, I think the only spinoff was Drag Race Thailand. And now we've had Canada, the UK, Australia, Spain, um, then Holland. I think Italy's coming. There's so, so many. Um, So certainly, like, I think in terms of franchises, that would be interesting to see. And that certainly seems to be something that is, it looks pretty sustainable question mark um it i would be interested to see drag race's ability to kind of penetrate other genre styles because that has been a little less successful so like rupaul tried launching um aj and the queen which wasn't picked up for a second season um you know bianca del rio has kind of uh released two independent films herself which have a bit of a cult following um and we often see drag race queens um playing supporting roles uh so um, Shangela and Willem uh, were in the new A Star is Born. And uh, Shangela became the first drag queen ever to go to the Oscars, which was so cool. And um, uh, Ginger Minge had like a bit part in Dumplin', which came out on Netflix with Jennifer Aniston, I think like, maybe two years ago. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, but something that I'm definitely watching is will Drag Race be able to penetrate into other entertainment industries beyond reality TV and live touring? Um, that's something to watch. Uh, I don't know how long Drag Race will last. At this point, it seems like forever. I do wonder if this will become, because Drag Race has become such, uh, you know, a real indelible moment within, I think, more or less millennial culture. I wonder if Drag Race will, people often ask me, will the bubble burst? And, and I was like, well, I mean, any bubble can burst, but I think it's also very likely that actually this follows the crest of a generation. And that what actually changes is that as these fans grow up and grow out of youth culture and become adults and become older, the drag men actually follow that. So it's very possible that the next generation may be less interested in drag only because people tend to be not super interested in what their parents were interested in. Um so, I mean, I think at this point, because drag has been so popular for about a decade, um, and it, it just seems to be so, like, integrated into popular culture, um, I think that is probably where we're headed in terms of, of drag's, uh, drag's long-term popularity. But yeah, like, I, I don't really know what the shape of drag will look like. Um, I'm very curious to see what happens if slash when Rue retires, 
uh, Will Drag Race keep going? Um, Rue doesn't host all of the spinoff shows. She hosts a lot of them. It's interesting because it's because it has been, you know, over a decade that you see in more recent um, more recent seasons that the younger participants and contestants talk about the older, you know, season one or season two being that icon, being, you know, like you're, you know, you're the person I look to. So, you know, what you're talking about there with those generations and that sort of move and, and how they are even informing each other. Little dog audio. Yes, a little yeah. dog audio. You need to give me one yeah. second. Please, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Right. He can chase the cat around. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, that, like, how it is actually, you know, impacting and making an influence on these younger uh, contestants and queens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a phenomenon we talk about a bit is, is the idea of the drag baby boom. Um, and both in outside of Drag Race that now the majority of young queens who enter the field, Drag Race was a really big reason they do it. But we actually start seeing on the show, I think Bob the Drag Queen is the first person to do this. Bob talks about the fact that they started doing drag because they watched Drag Race at a young age. And yeah, we have queens like queens who were in their early 20s literally grew up watching Drag Race, which is mind blowing to me. But mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you, this book has come out and you've got that. Is there, so my last question is often, um, what else are you, do you have anything else you're working on or anything with this book that's connected to that, that you, you know, one last plug that one you want to make? One last plug. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I'm, right now I'm actively working on, uh, I'm contributing to an anthology on uh, gay autobiographies. So I'm writing a chapter on drag autobiographies. So I, I'm looking at RuPaul and um, a couple of queens from, you know, like the mid 20th century up until more recently. And uh, I'm also, my next project after this is I am putting together uh, a solo book on uh, drag and nostalgia and drag as a form of queer cultural memory. I'm really interested in the parts of drag that are about kind of old school nostalgia and camp um, and performing history. Um, so that's something I hope to kind of be working on over the next uh, year or so, and hopefully have it to a publisher soon. Awesome. Well, it's been really wonderful talking to you about this book. Again, this was Cameron Crookston who put together uh, The Cultural Impact of RuPaul's Drag Race. Why are we all gagging? Cameron, thanks so much for being with me on New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. <laughs>